this is limitless possibility i'm local vids mabla and i'm yannick mangan and what's our topic for to this week yannick code comments and documentation good but before we start i have some follow up to be honest i only have one element of follow up and yannick sent it to me i'm sure because the content of it is so yannick and it seems that he has forgotten about it so i guess we will go through it so do you remember that uh regis Phil's MA, uh, the Nintendo of America CEO, uh, was in an interview with Kotaku recently. Ah, yes. Now I do remember what this is. No, you do remember. So Yannick crushed my dream because uh, Mr. Phil's MA on an interview with Kotaku mentioned that the N64 Classic is not in the plant right now. He said something like, oh, what is the code here? Oh, yes. You would not ever rule uh, something out, but it is not in the planning horizon. So the kind of more or less, uh, he goes in more detail saying that the, the two classic series were something to bridge uh, the business between the conclusion of the Wii U as an hour system to the launch of the Nintendo Switch. All of this is to say that they shipped that because they know it will be somewhat successful and you, you do, compared to what the success of the Wii U. So hopefully um, hopefully that will happen, even if uh, it could hap- not happen and it was kind of more or less confirmed it won't happen, which makes me quite sad, but I'm still a believer about it. I will believe. You keep believing. Yes, yes. And that is it for follow-up. I think that is, again, one of our good episodes about, like, shortest follow-up ever. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we have had a couple of shows where we had just no follow-up or we skipped follow-up. But for That's when you we have follow-up, this is pretty much the shortest it gets. Yes, because you was kind enough to not add more comments onto this news about the N64 Classic, which I'm happy. I made enough on Twitter this week. So. Yes. Oh, yes, you made enough on Twitter, so let's go and talk about code comments. Something you have, I'm guessing a lot of our like opinions, even the controversial opinions, I would say. I don't think they're that controversial. I think that oh. you'll agree with me once I lay out my arguments. But first I have to lay out a little bit of context as to why we're talking about code comments because it's kind of an evergreen topic, but it's also kind of topical for me. Um, Ooh. So the current project we're working on right now at work is the most complicated project the company has ever worked on. And while I can't reveal too many details, uh, we're working on a vacation calendar for a large factory with several thousand employees. And what happens when you work at a large factory with several thousand employees is that you have collective agreements that have ridiculous lists of Byzantine rules that need to be respected when it comes to the yearly process on which employees choose what days they they take paid time off on. Uh, And in this particular case, we have 22 different scenarios, and each of these scenarios has three to four different business rules uh, that are uh, specific to those scenarios, depending on what team you're on and uh, an employee's personal schedule. And this seemed like a very overwhelming proposition when we first heard about it. Uh, But it was also immediately obvious to me that the usual approach we use inside the company to develop uh, usually much simpler tools would not scale very well to the complexity of this project. And just to describe the current workflow for this process, HR people hand over a binder to a team of employees. They each take turns filling out a sheet saying what days off they want. 
Now, these turns are supposed to be taken in a specific order, though that doesn't really happen in practice because the binder can conveniently be lost by someone who's later in the order if they didn't agree with someone's choices, which happens. Oh my goodness. Employees are assumed to understand the business rules that surround the vacation process and to take days that they're allowed to take off. But again, in practice, this doesn't happen because the rules are way too fucking complicated for anyone to actually understand. And then the binder is given back to the HR department who has to manually validate that every single thing that was written in the binder is actually possible. And if not, they start the process over from the first error. To put it lightly, this is a train wreck. Uh, we need to offer employees a calendar that updates live with what's available for them as they input what vacation days they want and doesn't let them get away with anything that is completely against the business rules in the first place. And the more I thought about how we could offer this functionality and not lose our minds trying to maintain this system as developers, the clearer the path we needed to take became. We needed to use a fancy FRP, Functional Reactive Programming, view framework. And specifically in this case, we are using the Riot view framework with the Redux data store pattern. Uh, Redux, we've talked a lot about on this podcast previously. And this podcast isn't specifically about that project. However, there are a lot of comment-related things that have arisen from that project, uh, which is why I'm thinking about it again. Um, and just to sum things up very quickly, um, it's actually going really, really well. Uh, the more I use... Uh, FRP and the Redux architecture, the more sold I am that this is the way we should be doing web applications going forward, especially big complex ones. Um, but we'll, maybe it'll come up later, but this is not what that episode, this episode is about. Um, and just to explain more or less like the scope of the project uh, or what I'm responsible for, we have one massive calendar control, uh, which is a riot tag basically. And it takes a large state object from our server with the entire context about an entire year of vacation planning inside it, as well as configuration uh, for what business rules are enabled and specific parameters. Like sometimes they're relative to a given date or a certain number of consecutive days or something like that. Uh, so we just like pass all of the rules, pass all of the state, and everything else is done client-side, and then we shift everything from the client side back to the server when we do our final submit and you confirm your choices. So it's a big project. Um, and as I said, like I've been thinking a lot about comments and uh, the use that they have in a code base. And it led me to thinking about how comments are mishandled in education. Uh, comments are largely not taught correctly. Um, and you probably have memories of me trolling with the comments in my code base. Uh, there was once uh, an assignment, I believe, which needed comments on every line of code. And what I did is I put gibberish Swedish song lyrics on every line of code because the comments in large part were useless because the code was so obvious that they didn't need comments. Was that the same assignment that we also had to put a lot of constants everywhere and everything for you was a constant in your yes. project? Oh, I remember that one. Yes. Oh, yes, because the name of the constants were the Swedish songs. Yes. Yes. It, it, I, I was in a Swedish music phase at that point, uh, and I was having a lot of time uh, to spend listening to it, and I was just like naming everything after it. It was great. So the problem largely arises when educators tend to ask students to describe what they're doing in comments. And this is somewhat understandable. Like, 
I don't like it, but I understand why they do it. And the reason for that is if you're grading work by a student and the code that they wrote doesn't make any sense, having a comment above it explaining what they intended the code to do can be very helpful in determining where they actually went wrong. This is like the only excuse I will tolerate for uh, these kinds of comments because it makes total sense. You're still not quite sure how to code, write your intention, and then someone will be able to help you figure out what exactly you you did wrong. Unfortunately, as students start becoming code literate, uh, one thing happens, which is students realize that comments are just sorry, students realize that comments that are just restating what code does are a waste of time. Uh, and this is true. It's programmers' jobs to understand reading code, and you don't need a comment saying that you're setting a variable to the string apple if the very next line reads variable equals apple. Like, it's clearly <laughs> written in the code. You don't need to describe it. Are you sure? I, I think the comment was quite useful. Mm, not so mm. sure about that. Um now, they might also realize at the same time that as the code changes, it becomes especially painful to maintain those less useful comments so that they match what the code underneath them actually does. I'm sure we've all stumbled upon code bases in various jobs in the past where you have a giant code base with comments that are completely out of date with what the code under them actually does. Sometimes the code block that's under it has nothing to do with the comment because it got pushed down by that code. A bunch of weird shit happens. Uh, and in a large part, like those comments are just a waste of time. And the issue with the way that comments are handled in education isn't uh, necessarily that they ask people to describe what they're doing in their comments. It's that the teachers who initially give that advice never pop back up and say, oh yeah, by the way, don't actually do this in your real life as a developer. Uh, because often by the time it's time for them to be changing how they do their comments, that teacher is no longer in the picture which is kind of a problem. So now I'm going to move along to comments and practice. How do we move from what you're taught in school to what you should do in your job? And generally what I recommend is you push, what you push in your comments should be the what and the why and not the how. So the what is what are you doing in this block of code? Pretty simple enough concept to understand. Uh, it also serves as a visual separator in your code between major ideas in a block of code. And oftentimes this can symbolize a block of code that can be extracted into its own method or function. So pretty straightforward idea. I don't think I need to elaborate much more on that. You agree with this description? Oh, totally, totally. Okay. Uh, I like the what. The what, the what and the why, especially the why. I think most of my comments, is, I'm a bit going in advance, but uh, most of my comments are about the why. Yeah, the, the why is the really important one. If you've ever seen a weird block of code where you know what the block of code actually does but have no idea why it's there or if it'll break anything if you remove it, that's a good sign that you need a why comment. Uh, mark code that deals with exceptions or special cases to the most common case. Uh, also serves as a visual marker for test cases you should be writing if you are testing your code, which you probably should. And... What I think is very interesting for my particular case with the calendar is we have a lot of business rules that have names and like maybe they only apply in like scenario one or scenario one B or something like that. But we wrote the code so it was generic enough to be reusable in the future case where they come along with scenario 23 and we need to support that rule. So you can put those specifics in the comment so that you can search for it in your project and the 
the actual special case will pop up in your code. Uh, whereas you might not necessarily think to search for like maximum consecutive days or something like that in your code. So, so that's more or less like what the why is about. And this is what I've been thinking a lot about recently with regards to this new project is we're using a lot of new technology because like of all the developers that we have, uh, we have one developer who had a horror story experience with Angular 1 in the past. So he's not too hot on FRP. There's me who has FRP experience and then nobody else has done FRP. So to a certain degree, I feel like I need a little bit more of like, I, I need to sprinkle a, little, a few how comments in there, even though I don't necessarily want to, just because this is a new technology that we're using and I need to be able to demonstrate to our developers like how to use it as they read the code. So that seems some, somewhat inevitable. The what is... If you use like good variable namings and all that stuff, sometimes it can seem unneeded. Uh, if you are very good about variable naming, like it will be clear what you're doing. And if you extract a lot of code into methods that are clearly named and stuff, like you can reduce the amount of what comments you have by clearly laying out your code. But they're still important because they still like serve as major separators while you're just skimming through code, which is interesting. And then the why is like, this entire complexity of this project is a maintainability nightmare. So the entire time I'm writing comments, I'm trying to put as much why comments as possible to make this thing like maintainable at all, because there are so many fucking rules all over the place that it's madness. And we need to be able to understand like specifically what these cases are and like match it with the collective agreement, which we have printouts of. We have like the three collective agreements. We need to be able to like clearly associate what you're looking at in a paragraph of text to what's in the thing. So we need very specific comments for all of that stuff. Then aside from comments, well, actually before that, do you, do you have any like comments on comments? <laughs> I'm not really. I, th I, th I think you're right. I was a bit trolling at the beginning of the episode, but I think most, what of most you said is, uh, right and it's funny because i think uh i know it is part of kind of the code standard apple is pushing for like developing coco and coco touch apps is like well-defined variable and meta names like your object name should be also like, the class name should also be well-defined and i think uh, as a whole like objective c was kind of the was kind of defined as a language where you need to be not verbose, but you need to be clear and also like you shouldn't say like a p t n r for a pointer like you should make it clear that this is a pointer of something uh, and all of the apple frameworks are quite good at this so it, it kind of forces you to do so and i hope that other like technology stacks are uh, more or less doing the same like that they have code styles that they would like their developers to follow and also have the frameworks be the best example of those code styles yeah i actually really miss objective c method naming and named parameters like c sharp has that to some extent uh although most of the code i've been writing recently has been javascript which like i can have a lot of comments about javascript but one of them is that there are no named parameters you pass you pass objects with uh named keys but that is not quite as elegant as named parameters and like <laughs> i think sometimes i i piss off some people by having a really long 
uh, function <laughs> names because I'm just trying to stick to as close to obviously method naming as I can while also not being a jackass. Uh, and it's a hard line to hit because I really like objective C's verboseness. Like I know you said it's not verbose, but I think it actually is verbose, but that verboseness is good. <laughs> and it's something you only appreciate when you're in environments where it's not there anymore. But yeah, uh, how do you feel about documentation comments like Doxygen or uh, Javadoc or all of these things? Because I used to be big on them and I am not so much anymore. That is a good point. Uh, inside, uh, if I thought with my current experience uh, at work is we are not using it for our main apps and even from our shared frameworks. And I think some days I would like us to maybe move a bit uh a bit faster and maybe try to adopt those for our shared frameworks between the uh, iOS apps. Uh, a good example where we use it is we have some uh, semi-public, semi-private uh, frameworks for app integrators where they can uh, do more stuff with our... Uh, we kind of have a private uh, app extension based on the iOS app extension stuff. And that is using uh, Jazzy, which is to build like beautiful web base looks like kind of the apple documentation format uh using code gen that uh apple in xcodes uses like the whether it's the swift format or the objective format uh it reads both and then it just gives you nice uh nice web documentation uh, in general i would say that it is nice if you already already are doing those uh styles of uh, comments, which in most cases we are because uh, Xcode and in general when you just uh, do the keyboard shortcut to provide uh, the, the default template for uh, comments, it would do that in the, uh, in context, meaning that if you're doing that while your cursor is on the meta name, it detects the parameters and will uh, properly fill all of the uh, parameters, keywords, plus the return keyword to make sure that you can write the proper comment in this context and if it's just a var for example or a property on an object it will be a bit simpler so we tend to not use those tools internally but we tend to write our we tend to write our comments especially our public comments this way so if one day we decide to swap that it would just work okay so my opinion on like documentation comments for lack of a better word or like officially supported formats for comments that annotate specific blocks of code like classes, functions, all that stuff. I generally find that they are very overrated um, because like in theory, IDE support and uh, generated documentation results from this, right? So you're going to write your fancy comment on top of a method with like eight arguments. And then when you go to use that method, in theory, a little pop-up is going to show up with the description and like fancy formatted documentation. So you don't actually have to scroll back up to actually like go look at the function to see the thing. And this is another thing where I think obviously developers and uh, well, C language developers in general have been sort of spoiled by header files, which I don't think anyone actually enjoys writing header files, but it is so much quicker to actually glance at header files than to scroll through a long file. Uh, I know there's code folding and all of that stuff in the like, symbol navigator, but it's not quite the same as just having like half your screen a header file, half your screen a implementation file. That's one of the things I kind of miss from uh, from the Objective-C days. 
But yeah, I, I find like, uh, maybe this is just me, but Visual Studio doesn't actually automatically pop up the pop-up for uh, API documentation while you're typing code. So the autocomplete like, the autocomplete window shows up and you see the symbol names, but you don't actually see the pop-up that gives you the description for the thing, which basically means that unless you generate documentation, which we never do at work, you will never see those comments unless you're like literally looking at the code for that function. Uh, and I think that they're very, uh, they take a lot of lines of code to just write these comments, whereas I would much rather prefer stylistically a one-line comment that summarizes basically everything and name your variables correctly, and we could be good. Um, and, and that gets to the, like, I, I think there's a big intertwining of code comments and style guides, which is something else that I'm very fascinated with, uh, various style guides for various programming languages and how they differ from organization to organization. Uh, unfortunately for us in C-sharp, like, Visual Studio is very opinionated about what C-sharp style looks like, and trying to deviate from that is not good. So you basically, all you have to sort of determine how you do your style guide is how do we do comments and how do we agree to name things? And that is more or less like all the stuff you can do in a C-sharp style guide, really. But yeah, so, so I'm not sold on documentation comments. I think they are very useful if you're making a public API that somebody else is going to be using, especially if they're outside your company and don't have access to the original source code. Uh, like I enjoy reading those kinds of documentation things when they exist, but I think they're suboptimal for certain cases, especially if you're using them internally. Hmm. I, I find it interesting that even if you uh, provide those comments that the Visual Studio won't show them to you if you're looking at uh, at the method, like at its uh, call site. Like I'm sure there's a way to actually get the pop-up, but probably you have to click, a, you have to press a hotkey or something. And like, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> huh. Because if you recall correctly in Xcode, that, that's the same, like it's, I um, mean, now you don't know because you've not been using Xcode recently, but uh, uh, those, like right now, the, the shortcut you used to go to go from the call side to the implementation uh, has been changed to a popover uh, where uh, you can choose whether you use the uh, documentation, you see the documentation, or then you go to the call site. I forgot the new keyboard shortcut. I guess if I just do it in Xcode right now, I would. Uh, be able to remember uh yeah so that's call site okay i might have changed it but usually i do command click and it would do that but now it's because there's multiple save thingy that it shows but yes in xcode if you do the proper xcode comments that can be used uh with uh the jazzy tool which is not by apple by the way it's a uh, open source uh project uh those are still used inside of xcode for to, to provide you with better documentation while you're using objects and its function. One other thing I wanted to add is I forgot. So cool. Let's move wow. on to documentation. I, I'm very organized today. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm listing documentation separately from comments. I, I find comments are really only useful to other programmers that are in the code base because the, uh, and like if you're developing a public API, the documentation comments can be used to form a document that you can hand over to an external developer. But again, it's only really useful to developers. Sometimes you have to write documentation about your code for people who are non-developers. Or you just want to write something that is a long essay about your code and not necessarily code first. Um, 
And for that, like, you can use external documents. Uh, I tend to write everything in Markdown because I am a pragmatic individual who likes writing things in as close to plain text as possible. Uh, and there are a lot of different kinds of external documents that I produce. Uh, one of the things I really love and I believe more software should do, although it's hard to justify in like corporate environments is documents that explain philosophy or design goals behind a given piece of code or a given system, uh, within your application. Uh, years ago, uh, back when Patrick Rohn was still blogging on minimalmac.com, there was a post called philosophy.txt where he basically laid out like, Every application should come with a file called philosophy.txt that basically just lays out the values for how the application was designed and all of that stuff. And as a developer and someone who's used programming as a maybe a little bit too much pretentiously as a craft, I like being able to have some of that like behind the scenes look at how people view their own code. Um, and sometimes it can be really good to immediately see like what the limitations of a bit of code is. Uh, because it wasn't designed for that specific case or whatever. Uh, another thing that I would highly recommend uh, and have been doing increasingly for projects where I am basically the only maintainer within the company for some reason uh, is writing a primer for newcomers to a code base. You get into a code base a lot of times and there is basically like no road sign telling you like go in this direction for this kind of stuff, go in this direction for this kind of stuff. Uh, so I have been taking a habit, especially for projects that are sort of non-standard, which is increasingly what I'm put on. I'm like director of special projects or whatever. Uh, I get like all the weird shit that nobody else wants to do because it's too many weird Byzantine technologies mixed together. Making a document that basically lays out how the project is structured uh, if you've got like any recurring tasks or whatever that depend on, uh, that use this tool or, uh, are interrelated with the tool, you can lay it down there. Uh, if there are dependencies with other external systems with a lot of, which a lot of my special projects do, uh, give a basic introduction to that kind of stuff. So you can hand it off to someone else while you go on vacation and they can maintain it, uh, which is exactly what I had to do before I went to Japan for two weeks to ensure that the entire building didn't burn down. Documentation for higher level developers on how to use an underlying low level framework. Uh, this doesn't actually need to be like a piece of code that is segmented off into a library. It can just be like, here is how to develop subclasses of a very specific abstract class that I developed. Uh, and this is primarily what I've been writing for this project. I wrote the entire client side before anything was ready on the server, before we even had a database structure ready because this project is insane. Uh, and the only thing basically that we could write for many weeks uh, because we were lacking various details was the client side because we know how a calendar works. We have a lot of the business rules that we can implement. Uh, so I wrote the calendar first and then gave a spec to my uh, other higher, uh, higher level developers so that they could just pass the correct configuration structure to my control and then they could just treat it as a black box as long as they followed the right structure, right? And similar to that, uh, if you've got very complex multi-step workflows in your application, uh, like I know we joke a lot in college and whatnot about UML and diagrams and like the insane amount of diagrams they made us make in college that nobody actually does in practice or at least not in our jobs. 
it can actually be useful to make flowcharts for complicated processes so that when something goes wrong, it's much easier to de debug where it went wrong. Uh, and I've been recently, with together with my boss, we've been making more of these so that when something goes wrong, we can just refer to those graphs and have a better time uh, to actually debug the thing. Now, what do, what do all of these documents have in common? Well, they're all things that don't necessarily belong embedded in the code base because they aren't really tied to specifics. They're just big picture stuff. And that's sort of like whenever I have those kinds of ideas I want to get out, I start a new Markdown document, I start writing a bunch of stuff, and then I send a gist link to my developers with all the details, and then they have all the information they need. And luckily, I can just update it there if there's something wrong, and it automatically updates on their computers. So I'm a big fan of Markdown and gist for documentation. I guess technically it could be in a Git repo. It's just we still have subversion at work for some reason. Uh, so we can't really use GitHub for that, but yeah. True, and if there are big binary files, you don't want them in GitHub. Yeah, that's true. To be honest, I did not expect this episode to be so short. <laughs> but if you want, we can have a little document, uh, a, a little conversation. All oh, right, I, I remembered what the thing I wanted to talk about earlier uh, was because I forgot to note it in my notes because I'm stupid. Uh, there is this other concept which ties in very well with all of this, which is the idea of literate programming. Have you heard of literate programming before? Nope, I don't think so. Okay, so this is a thing that I believe was uh, started by Donald Knuth, who wrote the tech, or you would know it as tech's typesetting system, uh, which is like the base level of LaTeX, which or LaTeX, which academics use to write a lot of papers. Uh, and notably, mm. I used in high school to write a bunch of assignments for some reason because I hate myself. And the idea was uh, tech was written in a really weird language whose name I don't remember. Uh, but it was a language that enabled this thing called literate programming, which is kind of the opposite of code comments. You write a bunch of text, and within the bunch of text, you delineate certain sections as being code. So the idea is you're going to write your program entirely as prose first, and then you're going to flesh it out with the actual code later, huh. which is a very strange idea. Um, it hasn't really caught on very much because it's kind of wacky and doesn't really work very well for very disjointed applications. Like it works very well if you're doing very linear things like first I'm going to do this step, then I'm going to do this step. Uh, whereas like you can't really do literate programming for like classes i mean i guess you could i mean like i am going to now describe this kind of object dot dot and then you start your block of code and then like oh this field can be used for but it, it's sort of like in the case of classes it just ends up being like an alternative syntax for code comments which is really weird um but yeah literal programming it's it's i kind of view it as a thing sort of like tdd where it's more like a mentality shift uh, or a methodology that you use and not so much like anything concrete. Like, I don't think anyone actually wants to use the weird programming language that he used. Oh, I think it's called web, which is why I forgot what it was called. Uh, the web programming language, great name. Uh, but they probably didn't know the web was coming back then. But yeah, so you could just like write this prose and then insert the code in between. But at the same time, when I think about it, a lot of the times when I'm writing code, I write 
all of the basic steps as comments first and then flesh out the stuff in the middle. So even though it's not strictly speaking literate programming, like I apply the principles of literate programming when I'm writing new functions, especially long complicated ones, uh, where I just like put comments for each of the major steps. And then, like I said, those sort of become the what comments. And I can even write the how comments while I'm just like outlining how this function is going to go. And then later on, I can refactor it and extract bits and all that stuff. And it looks a lot less like a literate programming, but it started with that mindset, which I think can be good for certain kinds of people who have like the same mindset. Like it's a good way to get your stuff writing. Instead of writing in pseudocode, you can write in prose and then automatically like you get free comments out of it. So does that sound like an approach that, well, I guess it wouldn't really work for Objective-C programming because everything is buried in classes and all that stuff, but like, does it sound like something that would be interesting to you? Not really. And I might have uh, some con- controversial statement about it, but this reminds me a lot of some uh, behavior, yeah, BDD, behavior-driven development yep. and uh, some I won't I won't call test tools, but some maybe automation tools, uh, which I've seen it limited successes. So that's why I'm a bit skeptical about them. Uh, but not to answer your question clearly, not really. Yeah, I mean it. it it's more something that I do just like accidentally while I'm writing code because I just think in that way. So I just put the comments like that, like I. Uh, as I'm thinking about like how I can do stuff because I have to note it somewhere uh, and it just sort of happens. But strictly speaking, it's not uh, literate programming. It's just very inspired by it. Um, and there are libraries for other languages. I believe CoffeeScript has a lot of literate programming based stuff. And I remember tinkering with it quite a bit when I was having a CoffeeScript phase like a, a lot of years ago. But yeah, it, it's a neat approach to think about at the very least. Hmm. So that's it for this episode, yeah, question mark. Uh, a little I, short I, I one guess. for Thanksgiving week, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I, 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 to be honest, I was surprised that everything what you said, it was not. Uh, no, okay. Let me correct that. <laughs> surprised so, that my opinions were reasonable? A little bit, yes. Because I think that is uh, a lot of stuff we've been discussing for years. And we're like, like for that. Okay, let me put it this way. I we've been we've worked on projects together during school, yep. and uh, I remember that more or less the way we wanted to write code, uh, even if it we never wrote iOS code together, but we did share code uh, in between each other. The the way we really tend to wrote Objective C code was more or less uh, in the same code style. I think you were doing stuff that was not uh, my style, but like. Since they're not that much different code style and documentation style in Objective-C, that was easy to just like fix it up. Uh, but even when we add uh, projects in different languages, we were bringing back what we liked about the way uh, about the code style of Objective-C and Apple's frameworks in the .NET environment that we were coding in during our studies, because we would see benefits of the verboseness of stuff, which will in conjunction make us write less comments and the comments we were writing were more concise more about the what and the why um, even if sometimes we were bad at them uh, like what at this point like eight years ago uh, I think the, the the we were trying to f- to define the what and the why uh, with varying success 
Yeah, and I, I think it's very important when you're working in a team that everyone sort of... Like, I, I don't expect everyone to write the same kinds of comments, although I would really appreciate it if everyone did. I would also really appreciate it if everybody read comments, though sometimes people don't, uh, which can lead to hilarious things that are not supposed to happen. Uh, but I think we benefited a lot from using a language that is very opinionated and, in fact, sort of even enforces nowadays its guidelines on how code should be styled as our like either our first languages or as our first real languages we loved uh, to develop with because now we can apply those same principles to other languages that are less opinionated and sort of get away with it in many cases um, which you can't really do in the opposite sense because like C sharp like it looks like Java but with less long class names. And that's like pretty much all I can tell you about C-sharp style. Like as far as naming <laughs> and stuff, like there isn't really any consistency everywhere. Like things are named clearly, but sometimes like the same, like for example, count and length, which is also an issue with uh, uh, a bunch of other languages. But like if you have a collection, some of them use count, some of them use length and you're not quite uh... sure why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I mix it up because I think am I about to say something stupid? Did that change with Swift, or maybe they made the diff, the the they they made a different? I forgot, but I usually yes, I usually maybe or maybe it's because it's length for string and then count for arrays because then like count is for a structure and then length for for something that has a length. I would always mix it up. I, I remember there was something unclear and I'm still not able to wrap my uh, brain around it, but it could be because of just me and not the language. So, well, uh, another clearer example would be PHP. And I think this is easy to beat up on PHP because it is the punching bag of the internet, especially web developers. <laughs> but PHP, like the, I think there's even a page on the PHP documentation site, which is, Yes, we are aware that all of our functions have ridiculous naming inconsistencies. Sometimes we use at underscores. Sometimes we camel case. Sometimes we use all lowercase, and it makes no fucking sense. But the language popularity grew faster than uh, the developers could coordinate, and so they ended up with like a bunch of weird shit mixed together <laughs> that made no sense. And in certain cases, it was just like oh, well, we used the way it was called in Perl to be consistent with Perl, and then we decided to implement a Python feature, and we named it the same thing it's in Python, and they have different naming structures. So now, because we have these two different language origins in our code, we have two mismatched language naming things. And like, like that is really like worst-case scenario where every single thing has weird naming conventions, whereas like, we come from Objective-C, where things are very strict, and as time went on, it, they got stricter because the compiler started assuming things by how things were named. And that is when you sort of like got kicked in the booty to actually like get your shit actually consistent if you hadn't already. Because then there were like major consequences if you weren't consistent with the, how the framework assumed you were naming things. So yeah, it, we were very lucky to develop with Object C very early on. Um, and I think that's why we sort of a lot of our code style is influenced from that. Uh, and like I use a lot of long function names in JavaScript as well. And my programmers sometimes think I'm very wacky for naming them very long, but at least I know what my functions do without having to read a comment. 
Yeah. So all of this is is exactly that. It feels uh, at first I was uh, a bit worried that maybe you have changed on this, but I would surprise me. And I think we made it clear in this episode that we more or less have the same co- the same style that came from Apple's uh, code styles. Yep. Um, and if I can go back briefly to the uh, to the actual project we're working on. Um, like I said, it's going very, very well with the right view framework and Redux. And I, I was afraid of scalability and all that stuff. And so far, like performance is amazing, which is shocking to me. Uh, like I, I was skeptical. Like I, I've used Riot and uh, I think I, mm, I didn't use it with Redux. I just used Riot and wrote my own little data store thing for uh, another feature in another project we have at work. Uh, where I was just managing like a one field form on a website, but like the field does a lot of stuff. Uh, so I had to have a bunch of crazy validations and stuff. And I wanted to experiment with FRP. So I put right there. I have some experience with Angular 2, uh, as we mentioned on a previous episode when I did a hackathon with Angular 2, although now they launched Angular 7.1 this week. Congratulations, Angular team. Your version numbers are out of control. <laughs> So yeah, I, I've had a lot of FRP things. And one of the things I found actually hilarious is how quickly we are developing using Riot and Redux. Uh, like there's always the joke about like project decimation as a software developer. You're always going to overshoot or undershoot. Uh, and in my case, I've over I've been overshooting a lot because the way I've been thinking about how to estimate this thing is, oh, uh, in a regular project, we would be writing it in this much time. And now I'm going to multiply this by a factor that implies I'm going to run into issues with new technology. So let's say times 1.3. And then I say, okay, it's going to take me a week to do this. And then I do it in an afternoon and I'm like, oh shit, what am I going to do all week? I did this already and it's working and it's easier to reason about things because everything is a pure function and this is great. I wish everything was like this. So this is my sales pitch. FRP, it's easy to be skeptical because it sounds insane and it is insane, but you know what else is insane? JavaScript performance in 2018. That's what's insane. Oh, you really want to finish this episode on that note? Hey, I didn't say anything negative for once we are ending on a positive note. Mm, I'm not sure you were leading on. You didn't say something negative, but you were leading to something negative, which for you it is more or less the same. Oh, wow. I disagree with that statement, but I'm not going to do a very good job of convincing you otherwise, I believe. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So if you want to see all of the show notes, I don't think we'll have that much except a poor article about my beloved N64 classic. But this uh, beloved article that will make you cry if you're like me will be in our show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash 101. I might even link one of my tweets that was uh, super inflammatory about the N64 this week so you can see the opposite I am happy that some of your friends are also giving you shit about this, by the way. Oh, but then I got a bunch of faves on that tweet, and I was like, finally, the silent majority is rising up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can find the other episode, including the one that Yannick broke my heart about saying that the N64 is stupid, you can go on limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at, at limipo underscore podcast. 
That's L I M I P O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at Lukonoche. That's L U C C O N O U C H E. And you can find Yannick at Sakarina. That's S A K U R I N A. I have a request for our listeners. Uh, if you've made it to the end of this episode, I'm going to spoil what's going to happen in two episodes. We are going to have our first annual question mark uh, game of the year episode <laughs> on. Limitless Possibility, and I would like to know what games you have enjoyed, listeners, this year in 2018. So please tweet at us with your favorite games of the year. I will add to these things that right now my game lineup doesn't include any game from 2018. Oh, that that's fine. It's just games you've played this year because otherwise, like... I know it. I think it will I will influence a lot of our discussion. The fact that I don't think uh, both and you and I will have played 2018 games. Oh, I have played but... a couple. Oh, okay. Okay. Good. Then we'll see you in two weeks with a different topic that is not what Yannick just did. <laughs> yeah, sorry. See you in two weeks.